Hey friends, my name is Christine Chapel, and you are listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Jonathan Holmes and Deepak Reju about their books, Rescue Plan, Charting a Course to Restore Prisoners of Pornography, and Rescue Skills, Essential Skills for Restoring the Sexually Broken. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our two guests. Jonathan Holmes is the counseling pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio, and is also the executive director of Fieldstone Counseling and a member of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. Deepak Reju is pastor of the Biblical Counseling and Family Ministries at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and serves on the Biblical Counseling Coalition's Board of Directors. Hey there, Jonathan and Deepak. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today. Thanks so much for having us. Well, I'm really excited to try to have a conversation that is helpful, but also not five hours long because we've got two books that we're touching on today. And so I just want to thank you for taking the time to chat, both of you guys, about your brand new books, Rescue Plan, Charting a Course to Restore Prisoners of Pornography, and also Rescue Skills, Essential Skills for Restoring the Sexually Broken. And so before we get started in our conversation today. I'd love to give each of you an opportunity just to share maybe why you wanted to write this particular pair of books. So maybe um, Deepak will have you lead out with answering that and then Jonathan have you share your thoughts. Sure. Well, the main idea here is there's a lot of books on the market for strugglers and there's a lot of really good books there. So our goal was not to reproduce yet another book in that category. But what I felt like was a niche that we needed to fill was finding a book for the helper, the pastor, counselor, parent of a teen, best friend, accountability partner, small group leader, roommate, and anybody else who fits in that category of helper and discipler who wants to come alongside the person who's struggling and give them not only the what when and why, but particularly book two, the how, the the skills involved in coming alongside someone who's struggling and helping them in the midst of their struggle. So this is really a, we're trying to come alongside all those who are in community with someone who's struggling and help them to know how best to care for that person, love on them, persevere in love for them. No, I would just echo everything Deepak said. I think we we wanted a book that was uh, comprehensive, that addressed a lot of different kinds of people in different situations. And we wanted, especially in rescue skills, to give skills not only for the helper and the discipler and all of those different types of people that Deepak mentioned, but also just practical skills that the struggler themselves uh, could use. And uh, so hopefully we accomplished that to, to some degree in both of those books. Well, again, thank you so much. I know, I think I saw a post from Jonathan saying something like this was a four year process. Yes. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. yeah. It, was, it took us a couple of years. <laughs> a couple of years times two, it sounds like. <laughs> but um but yeah, so definitely a labor of love and and also just Deepak Life interviewed you for the show before in your 31 day devotional on pornography addiction. And we, we've spoken about that. And so I know this is definitely a special place in your heart to help people who are struggling. And then also, I really appreciate you just making that distinction that this pair of books are for the people helpers, helping those who are struggling with addiction um, in this particular context. So I guess it would be really helpful for us you know, I always like to, or at least try to at the beginning of the show, define terms. So we are all on the same page of exactly what it is that we're talking about. Because when it comes to pornography addiction, that that can mean different things for different people. And it can mean different things for those outside of the church versus in. And I love how in the beginning of Rescue Plan, you help us to think about what this includes. Um, So we, we set a definition for that. So Jonathan, maybe you can help us to define the problem of pornography addiction. 
Right. One of the things that we acknowledge in the book is that, you know, for different people, that word addict or addiction, you know, it has a lot of loaded meaning. And we're not trying to enter into any of those uh, contentious waters as much as we're trying to describe the dynamic for, I think, a lot of the people that we see in the counseling room. It's people who their entire life, to some degree or another, has been overtaken by pornography. Uh, There is a consistency to their use of it. Uh, At times, there's even a compulsivity in terms of how they reach out to it in different times of either struggle or disappointment or rejection or need for affirmation. But this isn't just an intermittent problem that kind of comes and goes. But uh, for many people that we see, that word addiction paints kind of that picture of voluntary slavery. And we use that term of just uh, people who continue to come to this uh, time and time again on a consistent habitual basis for, again, purported relief or for whatever whatever motivation might be driving them to it. And so that idea of voluntary slavery is helpful in that they obviously have a choice uh, in it. They're making a choice to engage with it, but there's also like an automatic response sometimes that's just kind of physiologically kind of built in that, that for a lot of people, that's a difficult point for them to get over. They just feel uh, an overwhelming compulsive temptation to engage in it. And so that's, I would say it's kind of that dynamic that we're trying to describe when we use the word pornography addiction. So on, um, if the, if the person is listening, ends up buying the book or has it in their hand, page 12, pornography addiction is an addiction to sexual sin that overtakes a person's life. The person who has embraced pornography views naked people through images or videos For their own selfish pleasure, men and women arouse themselves by viewing someone else's nakedness and usually also their sexual act. Nakedness and sex are exposed, selfishly exploited, and consumed by a bystander who is not the husband or wife of the person or people involved. So super helpful. And I think even too, um, and I know some of this will kind of come out as as we talk, but I think when I think of pornography addiction, I'm usually thinking of like the video form, right? So watching video, but there are different types of materials and I don't want to get super descriptive about it, but maybe that might help for us to understand, you know, what even falls under the category of pornographic material. So are either one of you able to just comment briefly on that? Yeah, I think when I mean when we think of pornography, you use some of those definitions that Deepak just read from page 12. Again, Defining those terms, I think, can be helpful. You know, I have a young man who's coming in struggling with pornography and what and where he accesses it looks very different, right? It's maybe primarily through YouTube or through different social media sites, whereas at other ends of the spectrum, it's it's much more, I would say, extreme, um, much more uh, embedded in their life. They're using uh, certain websites and certain mediums uh, in ways that I would say are more hardcore or are even more addicting. So I would say there's definitely a spectrum of use, but that basic definition that uh, Deepak just offered about pornography being aimed at selfish pleasure, being aimed at where nakedness and sex are exposed, where it's not your house, husband or wife. I think those are some of the key elements to kind of keep in mind. Well, and the game is changing a little bit too, in the sense of like the definition centers around images and videos. But if you add in an element, for example, like virtual porn, like a live person on the other side of the camera doing things that, that, that changes everything. And virtual porn is an example of an industry. Amni porn, like you've got cartoons um, that are explicit. So you're, you, you know, things that people didn't conceive of when Playboy came out in the sixties and seventies, the range of things that we're dealing with. And in, at the end of the definition, we then mention, okay, there's a lot of ways now to engage in sexual content. So you, you, you think of sexting, phone sex, reading about sex in a trashy novel, or what I mentioned, Amni, virtual porn. There, there's a lot of ways to engage in it. So we're, we're going after the classic things like images and videos that expose nakedness and sex. But we're, we're, we're clearly applying principles that go after a pretty wide range of sexually inappropriate things. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Thank you both for just giving us a a really robust uh, foundation to leap off from, because I think, you know, it gets us just to more thoughtfully process what it is that people are struggling with, the different ways that they can be accessing this type of content. It may not be through videos, like you mentioned, and, and what I appreciate in the book, you know, even just the novels, you know, written 
pornography is, you know, something that, you know, even among, um, especially I think women is something that people can be particularly drawn to and struggle with. And so I think it's just helpful for us to have that understanding. Now, I also want to give you the opportunity to help us to, or at least help the listener to understand the particular differences between these two books. There are over 450 pages combined in these two volumes. And um, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I've, I've read them and I've found them to be very helpful. But I guess I'll start and ask Deepak if you could let me know about a little more about Rescue Plan. So in there, you guys say that you aim to equip the reader by offering a robust and detailed theory of pornography addiction. And you write, quote, that you're trying to explain the nature of pornography addiction, what it looks like when it shows up in different stages of a person's life. So can you give them a flavor for what's covered in this book by offering a quick overview of it? Yeah. So if you think of rescue plan as the what, when, and why, rescue skills is going to be the how. So what are we doing in when and why? What are we covering in rescue plan? We're giving you a theology of sexuality, trying to think through creation, fall, redemption. What does God intend in terms of our biblical sexuality? Think through a theology of addictions and give you different theological perspectives on not only addictions, but the addiction cycle. And then what we name is what we call the four A's, the addicts, four foes. What are the active ingredients in the moment when someone chooses to act out on sexual sin. Then we get into two chapters, more information about masturbation than I think you're going to find anywhere else, uh, because it's such a common issue that goes alongside pornography. And so we think about the theological disposition towards masturbation, but then if you agree with our disposition, which is we don't think it fits in God's design to be regularly masturbating, then we, we give you a second chapter on strategies and 10 strategies in fighting it. And wh- what does that look like practically? And then we want to be careful about not making this a man's issue, but we give material on how women are fighting this battle and what that looks like and how that's different from men, because women are often uh, facing a double layer of shame, not just the shame from struggling with this, but the shame of being a woman who's struggling with this because it's so often portrayed as a man's issue. And I said double layer, double portion. I've got to think more in terms of food there. Uh, But then the last part of the book, different seasons in which people struggle, teenagers, singleness, dating, and marriage. And so you'll find a lot on singleness and marriage out on the market. I don't think you're going to find as much on teenagers and how parents can minister to the teenagers. And then dating, that was the one where like, when a girlfriend has her boyfriend confess, what on earth should she do? Like, where does she go? What kind of conversation should she have? When does she know to break up? When does she know to like, keep moving forward? There's little to nothing out there to help dating couples figure out how to deal with this kind of issue, let alone let parents know how to deal with it when they catch their teenager dealing with it. That's the overview of Rescue Plan. Well, thank you, Deepak, for offering that overview. We are actually going to be talking a little bit more about some of the things that you just mentioned. But before we move on, I want to have us spend a few minutes talking about rescue skills. And you write that rescue skills aims to equip the reader by offering practical wisdom on how to interact with a believer who struggles with pornography. Or in other words, you're challenging the helper to grow in their care and discipleship skills. Yeah, well, so when I was on Instagram while we're writing this book, I was scrolling through and I ran into these amazing pictures of food that turned out to be Jonathan's cooking. And I was blown away by this. And it's like Martha Stewart style photos of these amazing meals. And this is something I didn't know of Jonathan, but as I discovered it and then joined his Instagram page, and figure this out. It's like, I am one of the worst bakers on the planet. And I, I, I try an amateur level. I wouldn't make it into the greatest, great British baking show. I wouldn't qualify even for the application. And yet Jonathan is like this amazing cook. And so I've admired the kind of skill that takes to do something like that. Well, lawyers have those skills. Doctors have those skills. Plumbers have those skills accountants have those skills. Every profession has 
practical skills you need to learn to employ to be effective at what you're doing, well, we're just doing the same thing. I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to help disciplers know what are the effective skills in coming alongside someone who's struggling with this issue. So Jonathan, maybe I'll have you pick up on where Deepak just left off um, and give us an overview of rescue skills, because the book is broken up into two main parts. You have the first part, which is helper skills, and then the second part, which is struggler skills. So can you explain a little bit about the layout of that book and what we might find in it? Yeah. And, you know, to Deepak's point, I think all of us, you know, we appreciate food, we appreciate good things, but, you know, part of it, like you said, is, is knowing the skills or just the, the things that go into kind of getting you to that end goal and getting you to that end spot. And I think that's what we're trying to do in rescue skills. You know, Deepak said, if, if rescue plan is the what and the when and the why, then in rescue skills, we are trying to give you the how. And I think in that first half, what we're trying to do is, we're even trying to raise awareness of, hey, here are some basic skills that you need. And I think sometimes for the roommate, the best friend, the helper, uh, they typically, I think, locate those skills with a counselor, like a professional counselor, like these are things that a counselor needs to know. And I think what we're trying to advocate for is, no, we're looking for just every believer in these discipleship relationships, these helping relationships to really sharpen their skills, to grow their skills, to develop their skills. And so uh, skills on helping counselees understand uh, their motivation uh, for pornography, what does temptation look like, uh, understanding and discerning what does uh, false repentance look like, what does genuine repentance look like. Uh, we try to uh, talk about how do we how do we develop a plan, right? I mean, a plan's not going to be everything, but developing some sort of plan is going to be a helpful part in that process. And so in the first half, it's really oriented at some really short but brief and punchy chapters that would really equip that helper discipler. And then the, the back half of the book, those skills are really aimed at the struggler. And again, sometimes I think the struggler, uh, they can get to a spot where their entire identity is wrapped up in being a struggler or being an addict that that they forget that there are ways and opportunities that they themselves can grow in godliness and things that they can do to, I would say, sharpen their own skills. And so we try to address that in the back side or in the back half of rescue skills as well. So the back half, when you say the struggler, are you meaning that this is specifically for the struggler to read, or you are meaning that in, um, taking what you've outlined in the first part of the book and then really equipping the helper to then use the, that foundation and then specifically help or come alongside the struggler? Can you just differentiate? Christine, it's a great question. I would say both both objectives are probably in mind, but we really did write them for the struggler. You know, there's some discussion questions at the end of each of them. And, uh, you know, one of them that comes to mind is just addressing weariness. And I think all of us, you know, who have walked alongside either, a, you know, a man or a woman who's uh, just enslaved to pornography, one of the palpable things that you get is just an overwhelming exhaustion and weariness. It's, it kind of feels like every day is Groundhog Day. This is just always going to be a part of their story and their struggle. And so you know, how do you address weariness then as a struggler? What do you do? How do you think through that biblically? And so uh, I, definitely the helper is going to be helped by reading those, but we, we wanted to have something in there that was specifically aimed uh, to the struggler for sure. Yeah. In that sense, like you're, you're coming alongside and the disciples instilling certain things in the struggler. So that's what the second half of rescue skills covers. Jonathan mentioned weariness. There's a problem with the distorted sense of beauty that comes from pornography. So helping instill within the struggler a true sense of what God intends in sexuality and what true beauty is. Helping the struggler to have a bigger sense of, a, of, of the, the long game and the bigger picture in fighting this battle helping the struggler to understand guilt and shame, which is so fundamental um, to this battle, helping the struggler to know what to do right after fall. Um, and uh, since falls are common, uh, helping the struggler to know what to do in the middle of temptation. And a lot of books talk about sin, but don't tell you how to interact with temptation when it hits you. That's just a couple examples of things that are in the second half of the book. That, that both the discipler needs to work at in understanding to help instill. So I, as a discipler, need to help this struggler know what to do with the moment of temptation. I just need to get in that moment and help them know what, what's happening 
or the active ingredient, then how do they need to mess that up so they don't do it again? Um, but then I, as a struggler, need to also know what do I need to do? So in the temptation chapter, we actually have an image of a river and a common problem is people act out and they only confess after they've act out. They don't let people in early on. And so one of the things we talk about is, well, the discipler needs to be let in early. Like at the moment they start thinking about the possibility of acting out or they feel a sense of it, or they start the, bo- the bodily urge begins, that's when the red flags need to go up. Not long after they've acted out and done the sin. Well, there's a way in which we address both. The discipler, like you got to get in the game early, and the struggle, you got to stop confessing late. And, and that addresses both sides, then obviously in the conversation. That's just so helpful. And even as you both are talking and sharing about this, even though you're taking these skills and this plan and applying it to the context of pornography addiction, this is almost even, I mean, not almost, this is also applicable to any kind of addictive habit or behavior or what, whatever it is that some, you may be trying to help someone to, to overcome or at least to make progress in that battle. This is applicable. So it's, it's not just if you are in ministry and help people who are struggling with pornography in particular, but any kind of addictive habit, you can take the principles and the nuggets out and then apply them in other places of discipleship. So we've kind of laid a foundation for what these books are, what we're talking about. And so I'd like to spend some time getting a little bit more in detail with some of the topics we've already mentioned. Deepak, in Rescue Plan, you say, quote, the words addiction or addict never appear in scripture. Yet if you open the pages of the Bible, you will see ideas that speak directly to the problem of addictions. So can you explain what the five main biblical ideas or facets are of addiction and maybe talk a bit about how they help us to grow in our understanding of the nature of pornography addiction? Yeah, that's a great question. All right, here we go. Number one, voluntary slavery, which we have stolen, but clearly quoted, not plagiarized, Ed Welch on that. We've both been affected by Ed's teaching pretty significantly on this topic of addiction. So it was appropriate to lead out with that. A voluntary, I have chosen myself. So I take responsibility for that choice, but I've chosen so often and it's become so habitual that eventually I become enslaved to it. And we spell out even the details of what that trajectory looks like from moving from the first choice all the way to enslavement. I'm thinking through that concept. Double-mindedness, second one. I I want the sin, so I desire it, I pursue it, and I hate the sin. I don't want it. I don't want it anymore. And so you see that kind of torturous pull in both directions, typically. Foolishness. Now, what was fascinating is what, we, what, I, what I did is I listed all the verses in Proverbs on just being a fool, and it was remarkable how many of them looked like an addict. So all I literally did is I pulled together the verses on foolishness out of Proverbs and created a, a word picture on foolishness that resembled strikingly what an addict typically is. Idolatry, like what are you worshiping? that is over and above in your own heart more sovereign than God, that's more important to you than God, that you love and cherish more than God. Uh, and, and so obviously the addiction has become more fundamental to their existence. And then disordered desires. Fundamental to the addiction is the appetite. There's a craving and a wanting for something. And because there is a craving and a wanting for something, and they become enslaved to that craving and wanting, we go from it just being a desire, you know, like we all, all of us have some kind of desire to a desire that your life is now oriented around. So we use terminology like ruling desire, inordinate desire, just desires essentially that have taken over your life. And a fundamental part of killing an addiction is destroying the appetite and creating new kinds of holy appetites in its place. And so all five concepts, like a diamond, a diamond has different facets that shine and give you, let you see, like you have to turn it over to see the different aspects of the diamond. Well, addiction is not one just simple thing. 
uh, and if you're going to understand what it is, Scripture gives us rich word pictures to understand the different layers, the different complications, the different aspects of what an addiction can be. And those five help us enrich our understanding of what it is. I think the nice thing too, Christine, about those five different facets is it gives the it gives the helper five different lines of questioning and discussion and conversation that I think opens up different opportunities for insight on the part of the struggler, uh, different ways that maybe they can acknowledge or see different decision points that get them in the upstream down to the downstream of actually acting out on temptation while helping them understand foolish decisions, helping them understand the dynamic of, I hate this, but I love this at the same time. And and how can those two desires be, you know, at work in me at the same time? So, you know, they're, they're really well, I think, well-timed opportunities for the helper to be able to kind of structure thoughtful conversation around uh, with the individual that they're helping. With those five biblical facets and kind of understanding the, the nature of addiction in terms of the heart, the battle in the heart that is going on, Deepak, can you talk uh, just a little bit about the necessity for not just relying on behavioristic methods? Why, why we'll fall short if that's all that we're focusing on in this particular problem? I'm going to sound both like a dyed-in-the-wool biblical counselor and a whole trip groupie, but here you go. Uh, like lasting change comes through the pathway of the heart period so you want to, you want to moderate behavior and cut off access points and you want to make wise choices about the environment and wise choices about the structure of relationships and wise choices about your community but that's all external and that's really important part of the battle and you need to do all of that and yet if you want to win long term in this battle you've got to get below the surface and get to the inner man, the inner woman, the inner person, which is heart, mind, spirit, soul, imagination. You just got to get in there and you got to begin to rearrange the furniture that's in there. You know, escape, entitlement, desire for affirmation, discontentment, you know, boredom. There's all kinds of things that are in there that are, are heart motivations that drive what we do. And so we got to get, get to that and understand that. So a lot of people have a superficial understanding of their own heart. Tons of people walk around with a lack of self-awareness of what's going on in the deeper recesses of their heart. Uh, so when we bring this up, I always have to give the caveat like, all right, not everybody knows what's going on in there. A lot of people live a pretty superficial life, live a behavioristic life, don't even realize it. So you're going to press into someone's life. You got to be patient and thoughtful and gracious as you press into their life and help them unearth these things. But at the same time, if I click into all those heart issues I mentioned and go one level deeper, I think fundamental a person's perspective on who God is and whether God can change them. Is God good and sovereign and loving and gracious towards me? And is, is it possible that God could change this situation? That, that's our, what we'll call our functional theology of God. That's even one level deeper than all the heart motives I I mentioned because my disposition towards God and whether I worship him ultimately and have faith and, and trust that he can change, man, you pull back all the rest. It's, it's, it's the universe is reduced to me and the Lord. That's what's going to be. That's what's right now in terms of my justification. That's what's going to be true in the final day on judgment day. And that's going to be true in glory for eternity. As I might be gathered with all the throng, but ultimately it's me and worshiping the Lord. So I got to get down to the inner depths of a person's heart to understand, do you believe and trust that God can do something with it or have you given up? Jonathan, let me ask you a follow-up question based on what was just said there, because I think, and I, and in my own experience with counseling, um, counseling women, not necessarily in this topic, but just in getting to the matters of the heart, when somebody has been struggling or, or with an addictive habit or feeling like they are enslaved to a particular sin, when you do get and start peeling back those layers, you know, that person can begin to feel crushed, you know, feel like, this has been going on for so long. I can't imagine change. I can't imagine that it's possible. And how in the world am I ever going to get out of this? And so maybe, you know, based on what Deepak just said, how do we then offer that gospel hope so that the struggler doesn't turn inward and then start feeling that defeat, 
of, and the crushing weight of I'm stuck here. Like, this is just how it's going to be. It's a, it's a, it's such a good question, Christine, and one that, yeah, you're already alluding to that we all kind of bump up into. And I think in a big picture way, what I would say is, man, we are all more flawed and broken and sinful than we ever thought possible, but we are also more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared imagine. And so I think that with our counselees and with the strugglers, the the people that we're discipling and helping, it is maintaining kind of that dual track approach where we're talking about and addressing both sides of that of, yes, you are flawed and there are layers that we need to deal with. But the the only way that we are able to do that is because we have this gospel-centered hope that serves as this foundation out of which we can face this without despair. We can face it without hopelessness because we know that the Lord is near to us and that he's for us and that you know we can go to different passages like Romans 8 where, where Paul says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for us to begin to realize, okay, my my primary identity then, even in the moment of acting out or being addicted, is not that I'm a pornography struggler, I'm an addict, but I'm a love child of God. And I think understanding that, weaving that into conversations and coffees and dinners and meetups and accountability conversations, that that's why weaving the gospel through all of those conversations is going to be so critical. Uh, so that we don't overwhelm and crush our, uh, the people that we're talking to, our counselees. I think that's real great. I saw a, a tweet from Tim Keller a couple of days ago, and he said, repentance without rejoicing leads to despair. And that's kind of what makes me think about this conversation is if we just get stuck on repentance, repentance, um, you know, I need to change. This is wrong. I messed up again. And we're just totally focused on that one aspect of the battle and not moving toward a, you know, well, who will rescue me from this body of, of sin and death? Like, thanks be to God, you know, so that rejoicing component that the gospel gives to us as, as children, right, um, through Christ and his salvation. So thank you guys for both kind of going off the cuff there and answering those questions. I think that that was very helpful. I'm going to have you both also interact on the topic of masturbation. You know, based on what you've written in Rescue plans specifically, it appears the issue of masturbation is going to come up as we seek to help someone who is struggling with pornography use. And I appreciated that you addressed this issue you head on and you actually present not only a countercultural take on the practice of masturbation but surprisingly you also offered a counter 21st century evangelical take on the issue as well i thought that was really neat and so jonathan i'd love for you to spend a few minutes first talking about the dynamic between pornography use and masturbation yeah it's a it's something that i think it's probably all at the back of our minds when we're talking about the issue of pornography. But again, sometimes because of uh, different you know, senses of guilt or shame or how we were brought up, sometimes even saying the word masturbation can be difficult. And so when you're helping a pornography struggler, just even regulating your own sense of awkwardness about even talking about that, you just need to come to grips with that and understand, hey, this is this is something that that oftentimes is is part and parcel, a part of the problem with pornography. And so uh, masturbation does not need to happen with pornography. A lot of times people masturbate without pornography and vice versa. But I would say anecdotally, the vast majority of our experiences, those two things do go together, uh, that the express purpose of using pornography is masturbation. And, and that's not only biologically true, that, that obviously a person becomes aroused in watching pornography, but, but that there is that pleasure-seeking element of pornography that people are looking for. That's one of, I think, the main motivations of why people seek it out. And so to talk about pornography and not to talk about masturbation, I think would have been a bit unbalanced. And so we wanted to make sure that we discussed both of those issues and, and tried to bring a biblical perspective to it. Yeah. And to, to add in on Jonathan's comment, the, the the common thing for men is pornography and masturbation to be closely attached. One of the things that was a real discovery as we interviewed a ton of different women who are disciplers, professional counselors, women who work in the whole arena of sexual sin as a main part of their ministry is how many women struggle with masturbation that's unconnected to pornography and how, how common that, that issue is then for women. So we just wanted to, we had just addressed the topic in the light of pornography, but addressed the topic 
in light of itself as a whole too. It was definitely helpful for you to make that connection. And then also, I think just like you said, Jonathan, even just to use the word and to talk about it helps to kind of normalize the conversation of like, look, yeah, this isn't really the most comfortable thing to talk about sometimes, but here it is. <laughs> so we've got we've to help people who, who are struggling. But I also, like I mentioned earlier in the first part of the, the question, really appreciated the way you contrasted cultural views on masturbation, but then even also current evangelical views on the practice of masturbation. So Deepak, I wonder if you would help us to briefly compare and contrast those different positions with what you both present or or believe that the Bible teaches about masturbation. So, you know, secular culture, where they're going to say, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. You know, over-sexualized culture, get as much pleasure as you want, live it up because life is all we got. That's a basic philosophy of secular culture. Interesting, evangelical culture. Let's give a couple of points. First one, uh, you'll hear the argument, the Bible doesn't speak much about this topic of masturbation. So masturbation is morally neutral and biblically permissible. So there's this pro-masturbation messaging that comes from even Christian leaders. Pastor and author Tim Chester says, because the Bible doesn't address masturbation explicitly, we should be cautious about giving a blanket condemnation. Christianity Today columnist Tim Stafford adds, the Bible isn't shy and about mentioning sex, but masturbation is never referred to. I think the, at the very least, you can conclude is that masturbation isn't the most important issue in the world from God's perspective. And I can go on and on. As we did the research, and we found how many evangelical leaders essentially said, it's a morally neutral topic. It just doesn't matter, which therefore means you can do whatever you want in that regard. Second thing, you, you, you hear individuals looking for all kinds of extra biblical justifications for masturbation. And you don't have to look too far. You know, anybody can, as, as, if you have an honest conversation about this topic, can hear the, the justifications. The Bible never condemns masturbation. I'm not hurting anyone, so why is it bad? Everyone does it. I don't want to cheat on my spouse. So this is one way for me to have an outlet in my sexual desires. My husband can't give me an orgasm, so I need to do it on my own. This is God's design for singles to give themselves a release without premarital sex. And on and on and on the list goes. You just hear the justifications that people give in order to allow themselves to do that. But then third, James Dobson, the godfather of Christian psychology. People for decades have listened to him and focused on the family. What, what did he say? He basically promotes a view of masturbation is basically a physiological issue that is morally neutral so long as you keep it away from the realm of lust. So if you don't lust, it's fine to do it, was essentially his view on the issue. What does he say? Quote, I believe that the best way to prevent teens from masturbating is for adults not to emphasize or condemn it. Regardless of what you do, you will not stop the practice of masturbation in your teenagers. This is a certainty. You'll drive it underground. Nothing works as a cure, end quote. So what does the Bible tell us in contrast? Well, we've written a long section in saying God has something to say. Like this has not evaded the comprehensiveness of scripture. It's not like God's ignored the topic and has not absolutely nothing to say on it. Number one, mas- we don't think masturbation fits into God's plan. It's solo sex. It's, it's me having sex with myself. And what God intends is for us to have sex, use our intimate organs in the context of a loving, committed, marital relationship. That's God's fundamental design. Secondly, masturbation is selfish. It's about satisfying myself, my desires, and my pleasures. Thirdly, masturbation inhibits our relationship with the Lord. As I'm more centered on myself, it takes away and detracts my focus on God and loving the Lord fundamentally. Fourth, it's enslaving. It's not just an occasional behavior. It it feeds the sinful flesh just like porn does, and it can take over with an addictive quality to it. So I've helped lots of guys who... Pornography has actually been an issue, and masturbation has followed after that. But pornography fades, and yet masturbation is still an issue. And they seem to have a really hard time kicking the habit. And then number five, 
masturbation runs against the call, the biblical call to self-control. Scripture's really clear about being able to master our bodies and have a discipline and maturity, a fruit of the spirit in maturity is self-control. So, you know, there's more we could lay out, but that's the basic five arguments we make with a lot more detail in the book of why we think masturbation is not a fundamental part of God's design. And in fact, we have to fight it in order to preserve our purity and our holiness. Yeah, I just echo everything Deepak said there. And, the, you know, maybe the simple way to summarize it would be the evaluation of any type of action that we do must be done in light of what we were created for. And so whether or not masturbation is good or it feels good or is it moral or not, the only way that we can answer that question is if we first ask, well, who is God? How did he create us? And for what purpose and intent was that designed for? And so culturally, and I would say even as Deepak alluded to in some corners of evangelical Christianity, I think that they've kind of excised out that element. They've only made it a morally neutral thing that we simply do in the body. And I think all we're trying to do is restore a biblical positive vision to here's God's ultimate overarching design for sexuality. Does masturbation fit in with that? And I don't think that it does. So Jonathan, I'd love for us to focus the remainder of our time on considering the nuances of pornography used in singleness and dating. I thought it was really interesting to, to read through what you guys offered there in Rescue Plan for that. But I guess just real fast, because we're running out of time, before we uh, go into that, can you outline some of the similarities in how how individuals can fight against pornography use regardless of the season of life that they're in? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that the season of life is definitely a factor. I don't think it has to be the primary factor. And so some of those similarities would come in terms of just general motivation of why, why do I get enticed and ensnared and lured away by my lust? And I think that those can be true of single people, children, adults, married, et cetera. And so starting with what's common amongst all of us, even amongst the helper, ways that we're all ensnared and drawn away, I think can be a fruitful topic of discussion. And then understanding how an individual stage of life might be a factor, a complicating factor, an exacerbating factor for that particular motivation to play out, then that then I think can lead to helpful to-do points for them as they continue this battle. Deepak, maybe help us think about distinctive challenges that singles face when it comes to pornography addiction. Yeah, there are certain feelings and desires that are going to overrun a single. You're yearning for marriage, feelings of rejection, a desire to be seen and loved and known, feelings of loneliness, self-pity and reluctance to be vulnerable to others. But I think the thing I I run into more commonly in, in helping out singles in our church is sin's consequences for others that are less evident when you're single. So let's just give an example. A young guy who I'm helping with had gotten into pornography when he's a single guy, had thought it's not that big of a deal, I'll I'll fight it, I'll get through this, and didn't fight it with the kind of vigilance that he needed to. Meets a young lady, starts dating her, and as they come forward and ask me to get involved, I tell him he needs to slow it down and clean up his act with pornography before they move forward. I still remember them being on the couch, tears in his eyes, saying, we wouldn't be in this position if I had taken this more seriously when I was single. So, you know, the impact of it, when you now have other people involved, you take a step into marriage now, a husband's sin spills over and affects his wife, and he sees the hurt as she experiences his acting out and how that changes the nature of trust within a marriage. That You fast forward that out of the, the singleness conversation I just, the singleness story I just told you, and you realize that you got to deal with it as quickly and as vigilantly as you can, as soon as you can. You can't wait for that. And then the other part with singleness is just particularly in community. Singles tend now to hang out with singles. Married tend to hang out with married. We want to break down the walls and let singles live within the context of greater wisdom not just with their single friends who have the same amount of wisdom they do, but with married people who've gone through other seasons of their life and able to offer things for them that their single friends necessarily can't because they haven't gone through those other seasons and to be pulled into community. So why would a single person do well on their own if they've been struggling every Friday and Saturday night? Why wouldn't it be better for them to be hanging out with the family in their church, helping having dinner with them, helping doing the dishes, 
helping put the kids down to bed, spending the night over with them, hanging out with them for the weekend, you know, and that sounds like an imposition to a family. And yet this is what we mean by community, gospel community. So we want to bring down that wall and let singles be a part of married people's lives and feel enveloped in community so they can fight the battle, not by themselves, but in the context of that community. Jonathan, I have a similar question for you. So, and we covered a little bit about it uh, just a minute ago, but what are some of the distinctive challenges that arise when pornography addiction is disclosed in the context of a dating relationship? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. We would encourage people to, to read that chapter in particular, because I think we do take in general, the approach of we, we probably would not encourage and counsel those two individuals to continue their dating relationship. And we list off a lot of different reasons why, but but two come to mind in particular. One is that uh, I think it can sometimes create a false sense of motivation when we maintain the dating relationship in the context of the struggle. So the, the individual who is struggling, the primary motivation then for them to change is so that he or she can keep and maintain their girlfriend or their boyfriend. Or the opposite thing oftentimes I find that happens is that they just, they lie to themselves and they lie to their community. They just push it further down in the darkness because they believe that what's at risk is this relationship and this relationship then holds a great sense of identity. And so for those reasons, we really feel like uh, dealing with this struggle openly and honestly within the context of community while putting the dating relationship on the back burner or not even having it on the stove at all, it is probably in most cases uh, going to be the wisest approach. Well, we've got time for one more question, and I wish we could continue on in this discussion. I want to encourage the listeners. I mean, I don't even think I've I've scratched the surface of the biblical wisdom that is nestled into the pages of these two books. So I encourage you, if you are interested, scroll down to the show notes of this episode, click the link there, and that will take you to a page on the IBCD website where we have uh, all the information you need on how to get copies of these two books and get equipped for this particular battle, but I'd like to spend the last few minutes of our interview to invite you to uh, do something I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening who is presently trying to help a friend, a counselee, or a loved one break free from their addiction to pornography. Jonathan, I'll start with you first. What would you say to encourage this listener with the hope and help of Jesus Christ? What I would say is that what you are doing is important and it is worth your time and your energy and your care uh, because this issue uh, sometimes is so long-term and can be so addictive. We ourselves as helpers can get exhausted, but I think that this is an issue that desperately needs community and it needs the help of, of the local church and individuals who will move towards what is typically shameful and in the dark, uh, we need people to move closer to them, not further away. And so to the helpers, to the disciples, the roommates, the best friends, the spouses, I would say, move closer, move closer with the love of Christ. Uh, don't move further away. And what you'll find, I think, is not that you have to come up with your own strategies, your own plans. But if you go to scripture and you utilize some of the resources that we tried to offer, I think that, I think that you'll be well served by some of those. Yeah, to add in on what Jonathan said, we're not in this because we think we have some easy, quick fix formula. We're in this because we think the gospel really does transform people. And the benefit of our job is that we've got a front row seat to see what God does. So we can testify to the reality that people have been changed. There are people who live porn-free lives, who actually go on and are transformed by the nature of the gospel, to be really fruitful for the kingdom. And that, uh, some of my favorite stories in helping out people are people who came in a wreck and a mess, and now, years later, you see what God has done, and you get to watch how the gospel really does change someone from inside out. So if you hold on to a long-term perspective and saying, you know, I'm in it for the long haul. I, I know that love is not efficient, but it takes time to work through some of these really hard things. Just be patient and give God a chance to work and be ready to be used in that way. Because um, God really can do this. God, God can transform anyone. There's nobody beyond God's grace. 
And if we believe that, and first of all, if we, as in the three of us, and all the people who are targeted to this book, these two books, the helpers believe that, well, that basic job description of being hopeful for the hopeless starts you on the right path. Because if you're not hopeful, well, how on earth are they going to get out of the pit? <laughs> like They're at the bottom of the pit wondering what to do. So you've got to step up there and have your own faith in Christ spill over and help them to see, no, we can do this with God's help. You know, Luke 139, with God, there's nothing impossible with God. And that means the person you're helping. That, 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 that verse includes them, that they can be changed. And so we want to believe that, trust that God can do that, and walk forward with that, with that in mind. Thank you both so much for those words of encouragement. I want to ask real fast, if there's someone listening who would like to get more information about each of your respective ministries, the books that you've written, um, any articles, or just in general to connect with you online, where can they go, Deepak, to find or connect with you? Uh, you can find me um, at the church's website with the, the obvious one, capitalbaptist.org. Um, find me on Twitter. Uh, find me on Instagram, find me on Facebook. I think that's pretty much where I'm at online. And I don't have a particular website, but I've got a lot of material at the biblicalcounselingcoalition.org. I would just encourage you to go to our counseling website that I run, fieldstonecounseling.org. You can click the About Us tab and you can um, go to my bio. I have different samples of my writing, different links there. And uh, if you want to follow my cooking, you can on Instagram. You can search for me there and uh, hopefully get some enjoyment from that. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate the biblical wisdom and encouragement that you shared in this conversation. Thank your families too for for helping to support you both as you labored um, to produce these resources for us. So thanks again for joining me for the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to do it. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There, you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way, you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.